Welcome everybody. Uh, welcome to today's webinar. My name is Gus Weinerfeldt and today we are hosting the webinar Green Tech Indoor Vertical Farming on Food Safety, Waste and Security in the wake of COVID-19. And as you're all getting settled in and make yourselves comfortable, I would like to start with a few household announcements. Um, today's webinar is a co-production between Green Tech, Farm Tech Society and Agritecture. Uh, the household announcements. Can I please ask everyone to make sure that your microphones are muted throughout the session? We hope that you will all be able to follow the discussion without any technical problems. Uh, should you experience any issues, first of all, know that your internet connection will improve if programs that you're not using are closed. And also, should you experience any technical issues, please report these in the chat associated with the call. So that's not the Q&A, but the chat at the bottom of your screen. Uh, there is support staff standing by who will be happy to assist you. Uh, fair, furthermore, we are very happy that you're all here today and we want to hear from you and we will be using polls throughout the event to make sure that we can get your feedback uh, during the discussion and of course you can also ask your questions. There's another channel which is the, called the Q&A channel also at the bottom of your screen and you can use that for any questions related to the content of what's being discussed. The Green Tech team is standing by to uh, record all these questions and even if we cannot address your question during the seminar itself, we would love to hear from you we will work to provide you, provide you with an answer as best as we can. So to summarize, the chat is for the technical issues and the Q&A is for questions related to content. Also, uh, another important announcement, the webinar will be broadcasted live on Facebook and it will be recorded. Unfortunately, it's not possible to vote on the polls via Facebook. The recording of this webinar will be available within a few days via the website greentech.nl. And finally, after the webinar, we will send you a questionnaire asking for your feedback. Please fill it in and let us know your thoughts so we can continue to improve these events. Today, we will be speaking on how vertical farming can play an important role in addressing issues related to food safety, food waste, and food security, and how the COVID-19 pandemic is not only making a lot clearer, but also is making opportunities, creating opportunities for indoor farming businesses. The webinar today is divided into two parts. After the introductions, first, we will look at practical examples of indoor farming businesses that are dealing with the new realities of the pandemic, COVID-19, and finding practical solutions. And after that, also, Henry Gordon-Smith will be hosting a panel discussion on food safety, food waste, and food security. My name is Gans Wannerfels. I'm the chairman of FarmTech Society, and I'm the moderator for the first part of this webinar. I'm joined here by Herman Gordon-Smith, CEO of Agritecture, and by Mariska Dreschler, who directs the organizing team of GreenTech. Hi, Mariska. I'm seeing you're popping up on the screen here. Great to see you. Hello. Can you please give the audience a short introduction and explain how GreenTech is dealing with the impact of the pandemic? Yes, I'm very happy to do that. A very warm welcome to you all. Thank you so much for your presence here at this Green Tech Talk organized together with Farm Tech Society and Agritecture. As we know, we just cannot replace the great experience of Green Tech as a physical platform with approximately 500 exhibitors and 13,500 expected visitors from 115 countries. But we can reach out to you via this medium. And although it is getting quite crowded uh, at the highway of online webinars, I'm so glad you to turn to us and find the time to be connected with us. You are part of our Green Tech community and we very much would like to thank you for that. I am Mariska Dreschler, Director of Horticulture Green Tech. 
Up from the beginning of Green Tech in 2014, we plan to be your connector the whole year round. So next to the physical events, like via our talk shows, our newsletters, the marketplace, live streaming of our summits, etc. And now with COVID-19 hitting us, uh, our online tools are actually the only gateway to reach you. This is the second day of what should be Green Tech in Amsterdam. These three days, we want to offer you three great moments that focus on your profession. Yesterday, together with Wageningen University and Research, the winners of the second Autonomous Greenhouse Challenge were revealed. Team Automatoes, I would like to congratulate you. Tomorrow, we dive into the world of medicinal cannabis. Is it still a green rush? And how to optimize your crop. But let's focus on today's webinar. And before we do that, Gus, I'm very interested who we have as an audience. Shall we have a look who is present? Uh, let's take a look. Uh, I think we'll have a poll uh, popping up right now. In the meantime, I think as we're looking for um, uh, who's here today, I think we, we're right now we're at uh, a little over, well, almost 350 people and counting have joined the event. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the background of people that you have registered for the event? Yes, well, we have about, uh, well, at least 2,000 people that have registered for our uh, three webinars overall uh, from more than 100 countries. So that's really impressive. And, uh, well, uh, about this uh, uh, webinar, we have a top five countries, Netherlands, Mexico, USA, UK, and even also India. But I'm curious on who we have in the audience right now divided in the regions. Okay, so. I think we have the, um, the poll results right here. And right now we're seeing that two thirds of people are from Europe and then we have a North America as a second. And then we see uh, good numbers of people from Asia, from South America yep. and from Africa and the Middle East. Wonderful. Okay. Well, that's good to know. And now we would like to know uh, what type of visitors we have in our midst. So let's have a look at that. Oh, that's the second poll. Please all okay. fill in. Go ahead. Well, normally we see that uh, Green Tech has uh, three type of visitors, growers, investors, and business to business. But uh, I'm curious on uh, how it will be uh, divided right now in the audience. And Gus, what is the normal vertical farming uh, visitor? Well, what you, what you would expect for vertical farming is, of course, it's a new, a, a new type of business, which is new to horticulture. So you will get a little bit more of a diverse audience, uh, more spread out across the value chain. So in addition to growers, okay. we also expect people from other parts, maybe from financing, maybe from, from technical companies, uh, potentially from retail. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite eager to see who's here today. Well, let's see. Well, does it me measure with your what you just said? Would uh, you expect it? Sort of. Uh, unfortunately, I was hoping for a slightly more retail people, but otherwise, I think it's it's what you could expect more or less. We have growers, technical people, uh, people from education, very welcome as well, and of course, a significant uh, uh, group also who are others. And I'm of course very curious to know who they are, but that we will find out some other time. Of course, and that's why we have the survey. So that's important to uh, fill that in later on uh, by the audience. But, um, well, I would like to give you the online floor. Well, thank you. Go Thanks, everybody. Ahead. Yep, everyone, thank you for providing okay. your inputs. Uh, we will do this more along the way, so this was also just to get you started a little bit. Uh, I'll give you a, a, a short introduction about myself and the Fartech Society. Uh, today's event is a co-hosted event with uh, Fartech Society, Green Tech and Agriculture. Uh, and uh, Farmtech Society is an industry association for the controlled environment agriculture industry. 
The growing sector that we're in needs an open, transparent, and member-driven association that can unite and support a wide diversity of players in the industry. And Farmtech Society is that association, and we represent the full value chain from seed to supermarket as the impact of new farming technologies affects the entire value chain, as we just also discussed in the poll. Uh, after a little over a year, FTS has more than 50 members in over 17 countries and county. And among our members are industry leaders like Priva, Rexfam, Infinite Acres, standards organizations such as Global Gap and Suit, and various universities. And together we hope that we can represent the industry in a good way. We are a pre-competitive association focusing on three main pillars in our efforts. First, we develop standards, helping to reduce any thresholds that are limiting the development of the industry. Another focus area is education for the sector, working with thought leaders and educational programs on both sides of the Atlantic and across Europe. And our third fo focus is policy development, as we are seeing that rules and regulations are not yet adapted to the new possibilities offered by controlled environment agriculture. We're making sure our industry is heard there where policies for farming are developed, helping to ensure that also new forms of farming can build on solid policies and a healthy legal framework. Frontex Society is headquartered in Brussels, and we have a strong team in Europe and North America, and we're of course a proud partner of Green Tech, working with Green Tech to also during normal physical shows. Um, if you believe that such an association is worthwhile, please join our website, look at our website, join us, become members, and together we can grow the industry. Thank you very much. Um, and after that short commercial, uh, with us today is also Henry Gordon-Smith, who is the CEO of Agritecture. Welcome, Henry. I see you popping up right now. Hi, guys. Uh, a New York-based firm works close together with farmers and other indoor farming companies and suppliers, also in current COVID-19 times. Henry, welcome. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and some examples of things that you see happening right now? Thank you so much, Gus Amerska. It's a real pleasure to be here. And thank you, of course, to our audience. So as was mentioned, I'm the CEO of Agritecture. Agritecture is a global urban agriculture consulting firm. And the vast majority of the projects we help plan for our clients, which are typically entrepreneurs, are indoor vertical farms. So what I'm going to do next is I'm going to actually provide some different case studies of how vertical farms and vertical farming companies are adapting. So let's go over to New York City first with Farm One, which is Manhattan's first commercial vertical farm. So this is a small-scale vertical farm serving high-end restaurants in Manhattan, one of the most expensive places on earth. So as you can imagine, when COVID-19 hit and the restaurants closed down, Farm One had to really pivot away from its typical provisions to these restaurants. And so how did they do that? Well, one of the things they did that was really interesting is they actually turned their farm, which does often host tours, into a virtual experience for their customers, specifically to target consumers at home they wanted to provide product with. So they created live shows and concerts in the farm that were live streamed. They also did virtual tasting tours where different chefs go through the farm and online they taste the products. And they also did actually had a mixologist, someone who makes kind of drinks and combines them together and they did that in a way that they could sell a specialized box so that when you're at home on lockdown, you can also have some beautiful edible flowers and herbs in your drinks. And they changed to contactless pickup. So I just want to remind you all that if you have questions about this part of the panel, at any time, you can enter your questions into the Q&A section. Now, Farm One is an example of how vertical farms can adapt in certain ways because they have a unique connection, especially when they're small like Farm One is, to the consumers in the city. They're very close. So they can connect to them in a really interesting way and pivot in a very interesting way. So let's move on to the next example, also in New York, but this time square roots in Brooklyn. 
So Square Roots typically provides product to various grocers. Some of them are small, but also restaurants. And so they really had to amplify their supply to groceries as essential services. This is one of the main things that they did. They also had excess waste as demand shifted. And so one of the things they did to adapt was to donate that. Now that may not be an economic solution to the problems, but it certainly does help with your PR and help with keeping your customers engaged in your brand. They also rapidly advanced their um, protective materials that the, the farmers had to use and moved to very strict food safety measures even beyond what they already had. What, one of the things I talked to Square Roots' CEO about was that they were able to shut down some of the containers that they use for vertical farming to make sure that they weren't spending energy unnecessarily. So in some ways, vertical farming allows you to adapt in an interesting way by deciding how much you wanna produce versus not, that may be sometimes difficult for conventional growers. Let's move over to NO3B, which is a Canada-based turnkey vertical farming provider. So this isn't an operator, but they actually provide turnkey, op, turnkey vertical farming technologies. And so one of the first things they did was they knew that there was gonna be maybe a slowdown in individuals purchasing their equipment, entrepreneurs for food production, but they went directly and partnered with some of the biopharmaceutical companies trying to do research and R&D around COVID-19. So vertical farming as an ultimate control solution of the variables for plant production has a unique ability to grow some of these biopharmaceutical products. And so in that way, they were able to quickly jump on the opportunity that is COVID-19 and supply solutions there. And so I invite you to learn more about what they're doing with that biopharmaceutical company to help COVID-19 patients and first responders. Let's move over to Infarm, which is based out of Berlin, Germany, but they are a global company. And so what Infarm has is a model that's very focused on retail. And I think that there's been a lot of criticism of retail focused models in some ways. You know, how can you have these systems in the store and the additional cost of production with that, is that gonna make sense? Well, in some ways, because Infarm really bet on the retail experience, they actually didn't have any losses as a result of COVID-19, but saw a dramatic increase in sales when speaking to their team. I learned a little bit about that. So as more consumers went to the supermarkets, they actually got more exposure from COVID-19, were able to do that. Of course, in order to provide a safe experience with these stands, uh, Infarm has had to make sure that food safety and protective social distancing initiatives are implemented. So really interesting there to see what are the business models that these vertical farms have chosen and how the technology plays a role in that as well. And I think with Infarm, because of the increased interest in healthy products, um, it's going to be important that, you know, they, the consumers are more aware of things like herbs and fresh greens. And because Infarm has the front facing access to the consumer, it gave them a competitive advantage in this challenge. Let's move over to Belgium and Urban Harvest which is a farm tech society member actually and a very interesting vertical farm practicing circular economy activities. So again, going back to the modularity of vertical farming, Urban Harvest claims that they were able to actually increase production rapidly to respond to the increased demand from their retail customers. And so through these modular solutions, they can kind of increase and decrease their production, which is very interesting. And of course, they've provided different approaches to packaging as well to ensure that they're still being sustainable and reducing plastic where possible, which is something that's always been important to them. And they're supplying about 10,000 specialty herbs through their vertical farm weekly, which is quite interesting. So I definitely invite you to check them out as well. If you have any questions about these facilities or about vertical farming in particular, now is the question time for this part of the topic. So let's dive into your questions. So let me 
see we've got some questions coming in here. Um, <clears throat> so one of the questions is for me, particularly from Juan Gabriel. Um, do you provide all technology or do you choose from different technological solutions for our project? So I think that's more of a question about how agritecture works, which is welcome. So what agritecture does is we remain technology agnostic. We believe that there are a number of solutions to your problem, whether that's your labor context, your market context. And so we don't wanna limit ourselves to any single technologies for our clients. And we remain independent and do kind of assessments of those different aspects to help you understand that. Um, let me just go briefly into an example of something that agritecture is doing to help you make some of these choices. Agritecture has taken its services of feasibility studies and put them online in a platform called Agritecture Designer. Agritecture Designer is the first online farm planning software for greenhouses and vertical farms and container farms. And its real mission is to help you at a low cost understand the yields and economics of your idea. Without hiring a consultant or going to a technology provider, you can get your initial estimates. And there's actually free parts of the tool where you can fill in a concept survey and kind of get an idea of similar farms to your idea. So let's go into this. I really want to add some value to you today by showing some data from our first users on Agritecture Designer. So if we look here at the first chart, one of the questions that we ask users is what would you like to grow? And here in the answers, we can see some things that are not surprising. Most of the users want to grow leafy greens and herbs and microgreens, which I think shows a signal that the basic knowledge of what's possible in indoor farms has become quite popular and also you know, that they're interested in those products. But if we go a little bit further, we do see that there is quite a significant interest in berries and mushrooms. And so certainly if we think about green tech and the future of that event, there's gonna be an increased focus on berries and mushrooms. Mushrooms can be grown indoors, they typically are. Berries are a hot new topic for vertical farming is something different from the previous products I mentioned. Now, where are our users from so far? Well, certainly Agritecture's audience is global. We do have the majority of our audience for North America, but it is really expanding around the world in Asia, the Middle East, and India as well. But we can see here that most of the users were from North America that use the platform, followed by Europe and Asia. And you can see the other country breakdowns there as well. Vertical farming is truly a global phenomenon as demonstrated by our audience here today. And I'd like to get into some questions and answers. If you wanna learn more about Agritecture Designer, go to design.agritecture.com. So let's get into some questions here. Our first question here is coming from, this is a question about the unit economic study for setup cost and ROI of vertical farms. I think I answered that, that is possible with Agritecture Designer as a solution. You can also look at some academic studies, although they have some flaws as their commercial aspects, and certainly some equipment providers do provide some ROI estimates for them as well. Let's move over, over to Prashanath, who's asking the type of crops in vertical farming is limited. What is NO3B doing differently that addresses pharma needs? I invite you to read the press release on NO3B. It's gonna give you some details on what they're doing. But actually historically, vertical farming has been used for medicinal products. If you look at um, a project actually in College Station, Texas, they are growing vaccines and they were growing vaccines in tobacco plants because tobacco plants can actually produce those vaccines more than the production eggs, which is more typical. So I think it's about identifying how these controls around vertical farming can impact pharma as well. Certainly the theory is that in a controlled environment, you can increase the usable biomass that would be used for medicinal or pharmaceutical uses. 
Um, let's go into another question here from Francis Beaumont. We've mentioned positive adaptive, adaptive changes. What are some of the negative adaptations or scenarios that have panned out due to the pandemic? Well, I think as mentioned in, in, in the examples I gave, most vertical farmers have suffered from a shift in either increased demand, they have to respond to rapid, rapidly with the difficulty of keeping their labor safe through the, through the aspects of getting to work and being safe on the job. So that's a challenge, I think, across the board. We're gonna get a little bit into that with our panel as well. I think some of the other negative ones are if you're focused on restaurants, you had a dramatic loss in sales and a very difficult ability to respond to that, especially if you're small and you're, you're far away from your consumer. Okay. Hey, Henry. Yeah. We were seeing, I think, a, a good number of questions here. We also, uh, so also, I think I got some questions that I see you coming in on. Uh, go for, go the, for one if you want. Yeah, no, right. So, so on, on for instance, the, 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 the types of, of crops that are being grown from, the, from Dan de Vries, uh, what share of leafy greens is, farm, is delivering a more progressive city? I think in general, you would see that uh, the vertical farming is, of course, still very much of, of a startup industry and young industry where the, the typical crops that are being grown is, is still leafy greens, herbs, uh, maybe some, 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 some uh, microgreens or something like that. Uh, what you do see is that the, um, if you look about more progressive cities, people, I would say areas where people embrace the new ways of farming in a little bit more way. The typical crops you would see are the higher value added types of crops that are basically more nutritious or tastier or differentiating compared to what you would normally get. Uh, clearly, it's, it's one of the ways that we're looking as an industry to also develop business models that work. And also from the examples that Henry shared, you can see that uh, some, uh, some, some, some companies do a better job than others. And of course, we like to also learn from the good ones. And that's also what we're doing this, uh, in this uh, event. Um, I think we cannot answer all the questions uh, right now. So thank you everyone for, for putting them in and we will definitely, we have recorded them and we will come back to them as much as we can. But I would suggest that we move on to the second part of the webinar now. Uh, Henry, you will be picking that part up. You will be the moderator for that part. Can you tell me about the exciting panel that you've got lined up for us and how we're going to go into the next uh, second? Absolutely. Thank you for those questions. And just a reminder that if you want to tweet at Farm Tech Society, at Society Farm, or Agritecture at Agritecture, or at Green Tech Rye, you can actually tweet with us, and our social media managers will do our best to answer your questions on an ongoing basis. So let's move on to our panel. So what we're going to do here is we're going to talk about controlled environment agriculture, CEA as it's called, and how food safety, waste, and security relate to that in the wake of COVID-19, the wake of this global pandemic. And what we've done is we've gathered a global set of panelists from Canada to the United States and Africa to answer some of these questions to give some local context. So coming up first, we're gonna start with Lauren Baker. And Lauren Baker is the Director of Programs at the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. Lauren, how are you doing? Great, Henry, how are you doing? Nice to be here, everybody. Thanks for joining. Thanks so much. So Lauren, just tell us about yourself and your work. Great. Um, I think my slide's going to come up any minute. Uh, I'm with the Global Alliance for the Future of Food, and we're a strategic alliance of philanthropic foundations working together with others to transform global food systems now and for future generations. So this topic and, and this community of people is really um, great to connect with. Our vision is healthy, equitable, renewable, resilient, inclusive, diverse, and interconnected food and agriculture systems shaped by people, communities, and their institutions. And that 
long list of principles is really important to us, helps um, guide our work and evaluate our work as well as we think about food systems transformation. Um, here on the slide, I've just jotted down, um, if we change our objectives for the system, we change the system. And I think um, the, the COVID pandemic is really um, illustrating how food safety, food waste, food security, food insecurity are all intrinsically linked um, to aspects of our food systems. So fair and affordable access is really a pressing issue right now um, around the world. Poverty and injustice, as we've seen in the last 10 days, uh, the availability of culturally relevant, appropriate food, uh, weakened and compromised immune systems, environmental contamination, occupational hazards, and more. And so what we're interested in is really how these issues are um, symptoms and aspects of the broader food system. So we have a chance, and I think we'll be talking about this um, through the examples, and Henry, the examples you provided were, were really great illustrations of how we can shift from food systems that too often result in harm uh, and that put human, animal, and ecological um, health at risk to food systems that um, put human, animal, and ecological health first. So really we're talking about broadening our frames of analysis, um, looking at the linkages, um, looking at key connections uh, and opportunities for systemic um, action uh, that reduce health risks in food systems. So um, to wrap up, um, I think we all know on this um, call today that there's a need for integrated approaches. Um, this can happen at the policy level, but also within a company. And this is where um, CEA can make a meaningful difference as we seek to marry sustainability, health, and equity objectives in the post-COVID context. So I uh, look forward to um, fleshing out some of those ideas um, as we um, delve into the conversation. Thanks, Henry. Thank you so much, Lauren, for those insights and also showing the interconnectedness of it all and the complexity. We're gonna dive deeper into food security and CEA with Lauren coming up in a bit. But first, let's go to Nana Ajoa, who is the initiator at Guza Kuza. Nana, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. I like the way you pronounce Guza Kuza. <laughs> oh, how am I supposed to pronounce it? Tell me. <laughs> I, did I get it? I was trying to get it right. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, so yes, Guza Kuza is an organization in Ghana, and we are focused on women. So we inspire women to take action in agribusiness. We believe that from the classroom to the farm or to the boardroom, women should be at the forefront. And so we train them, we equip them with skills and with resources. So far, we have initiated um, bold projects called Ignite and also She Farms. So for Ignite, Ignite is an agribusiness initiative for young women on the African continent. So it's for all women on the continent. Um, we provide them with mentorship, with internship, with residential training. So by the time they are done with the, tra with the training, they can actually build their destructive businesses. And then sheep farms is also a climate smart revolution. We call it revolution because we want to stop the vegetable importation into our country. So this is for only Ghanaians, unfortunately. <laughs> it's for Ghanaian women, and we are equipping them with skills, how they can be able to grow um, vegetables, how, can, how they can be able to um, uh, do um, best practices yes, in agriculture, and also build um, businesses that can withstand the test of times like COVID-19. Yeah, so basically, that's what we're doing. 
Thank you so much, Nana. And I really admire all your work in those examples. We're going to get into some of that adaptation to COVID-19 coming up soon. Let's move over to our next panelist who's joining us from the United States. Marnie Carlin is the Executive Director of the Controlled Environment Agriculture, again, CEA, Food Safety Coalition. How are you doing, Marnie? I'm great, Henry. Thanks so much. Uh, and thank you, of course, to Green Tech, Farm Tech Society, and Agrotexture for having me here. It's so great to be a part of this conversation on the impact of COVID-19. Um, and it's also so great, I just have to say, to be a part of a panel of such strong and amazing women. Um, I just want to put a, put a pin in that because I think that's pretty amazing. Uh, my name is Marnie Carlin, and I'm the Executive Director of the Controlled Environment Agriculture Food Safety Coalition. We are an independent and member-governed organization whose membership is made up of controlled environment leafy greens growers and turnkey solutions providers who subject their production processes to external food safety audit. We were established for a few reasons, to develop credible, strong, and appropriate food safety standards specific to CEA production, to educate consumers and regulators on controlled environment growing and its added values, and of course, to communicate the value of CEA. And we advocate for policies in the United States that take into account CEA production and that ensure that CEA production is considered a vital part of our food supply. Um, we'd love to talk to any of you who might be interested in learning more about what we do, and you can see our contact information here. But right now, I'd like to talk for just a minute about how CEA production can be a part of a secure domestic food supply, and also how our approach to food safety creates confidence, especially in this time of pandemic. First, how CEA production can be a part of a secure domestic food supply. Um, controlled environment production is resilient to business disruptions. That's one of the great things about what we do. Uh, in part because we replace a long and complex supply chain with a shorter and more local one, which is less susceptible to these disruptions and is also more agile and able to pivot when disruptions happen. Um, as Henry mentioned earlier when he, he gave those examples, um, we see lots of examples of CEA producers being able to pivot their, their operations. As the pandemic stresses our food supply chain, CEA producers can continue to supply the nation's consumers with healthy and safe food. And then of course, I'd also like to talk about how CEA food safety practices can create confidence in our food supply, especially at a time right now when we're having some lack of confidence in a variety of things that are going on. Um, CEA producers, of course, always take food safety seriously. Um, and we've been able to pivot to ensure that additional measures are being taken during this time of pandemic. Measures such as the use of personal protective equipment, distancing, uh, grouping team members and rotating those groups so we can identify and segregate risks should they arise. I also want to quickly note that our focus on traceability in our production processes that we always do, regardless of pandemic or other disruption, um, is a benefit of CEA production generally. It allows us to trace when we do have potential food, food safety issues, and we can translate that now into traceability of our entire process, including what team members have been in contact, et cetera, which allows us to really respond very, um, very quickly and very well should there be any COVID issues. So it's been a real um, learning experience for CEA and a real opportunity for us to take the things that we do so well um, in a day-to-day -day environment and translate them into this, um, this significant pandemic situation. I find this so fascinating, Marnie, because you know even before COVID-19, there were food safety outbreaks, E. coli, various issues, that CA started to really rise in interest to retailers and governments in the US to really be a solution. And now COVID-19 has kind of really amplified that. And so it's really good your coalition is in place 
right before this. So in the context of food safety, we're going to now move into some um, deeper dives here, and you're going to be one of the first people we talk to about food safety. But to help the audience kind of get up to speed a little bit, we're going to show a case study from Europe and some details of what's happening with food safety and COVID-19, specifically in the format of a video coming up here soon. So this video is essentially going to explain a little bit more about some of the food safety issues that are being faced in the face of COVID-19, and it's going to help us understand what's occurring there. Do we have the video ready? Great. Spaniards call it the plastic sea. 33,000 hectares of greenhouses, even visible from outer space. This is where 50% of the fruit and vegetables consumed in Europe grow. But since coronavirus began ravaging Spain, production has become a challenge. Everyone wears masks, gloves. To keep a safe distance between workers, we've set up separation barriers to better protect them. Safety measures that have added 35% onto production costs, says the company. Now you need to put a bit of gel on. As soon as we arrive on site, we have our temperature taken. Our presence adds to the manager's stress. Her biggest nightmare is for one of her workers to be contaminated. Of course we are continuing to work, but we need double the staff because we have to rotate everyone more. We produce the same amount as before, but with double the workers. The extra costs drive up prices, but neither the producers nor the supermarkets want to give us precise figures. We're producing pepper here, and we're in the middle of the harvest. A few meters away from the packing factory, this agricultural engineer is proud to show us that production has never stopped. Our job is to feed the world. It's for the common good, so yes, I'm proud to keep working in agriculture at a time like this. One of the knock-on effects of the health crisis is that consumers want more fruit and vegetables than ever before. We've seen a rise in demand for fruit and vegetables that improve our immune systems. Green peppers, for instance, have three times as much vitamin C in them than an orange. We just hope the rise lasts after the crisis. With increased demand, this unionist complains some companies are breaking the rules. Many companies are putting their profits first. They are not worrying about workers' safety, and that's a real problem. In the fields, for instance, no one is wearing a mask. Majid, a Moroccan picker, tells us of his worries out of the earshot of his bosses. Of course we're afraid to go to work, because it's dangerous. There are some tasks that we do, and we shouldn't be doing them because of this deadly virus. Majid thinks too few checks are being carried out. He believes workers in southern Europe are being abandoned. Okay, thank you so much for watching that video with us. I think it really highlights the challenges around food safety and what's happening to these farms of COVID-19. Now, there was one of the questions we got from the audience, which was about um, CEA. CEA stands for Controlled Environment Agriculture. That's the use of greenhouses or even more high-tech vertical farms to control the variables of production. So one of the questions we're really trying to talk about here today is does that control have a better response, an interesting response 
to the issues that have been highlighted because of COVID-19 in this crisis. So now we're gonna open it up to our panel a little bit. I'm gonna begin with Marnie. Marnie, one of the things that was mentioned in there is the difficulty of kind of managing staff in the face of COVID-19 in these rotations. Could you walk us through what are some of the things you're seeing CEA operators um, do in the context of COVID-19 that's different? What are some of the examples that you're seeing on the ground? Absolutely, thanks Henry. And that was a great and very informative video. Um, in the US here in CEA production, we've seen shifts in safety measures as we've grown to understand how to mitigate the risks of COVID. We've seen our members um, commit to wearing personal protective equipment. So that's masks, gloves, um, face shields sometimes. We've seen our members limit access to the farms to only essential employees um, and only essential employees, right? So only those who are necessary to be farming at that time, right? We've seen our members take temperatures before employees enter, uh, which we know is, is a limited, um, a very, you know, limited um, test, but it's something. And of course, we've also seen our members rotate teams of employees like you saw in the video. So if there does become someone with an exposure, you're able to then sort of trace any risks and segregate them from the process. Um, like I said earlier, CEA production does already incorporate a lot of these traceability measures and growing. So this has been an opportunity to take what we already know and implement it in slightly different ways to respond to the pandemic. I did want to comment very quickly that in the video, um, someone did mention that it's a stress on the system sometimes to implement these measures, right? It does increase um, some costs. Um, but a couple of things. We do, we have been seeing in the U.S. a rise in demand for fruit and vegetables as well. We've also been seeing um, a rise in the supply of available workers, right? As we've seen a number of industries really take some harm, um, like the restaurant industry is an example, it's been an opportunity to offer jobs, to offer work um, to folks who, who love the food sector, right? And so who are available to do this work. And of course, regardless of all that, it's critical to adhere to these measures for a couple of reasons, to protect our workers um, and to ensure a safe and secure food supply for our consumers. Well, that's very interesting to hear that you've seen the demand also increasing in the United States. And I really like that comment about the movement of unemployment to these farms, because when we're thinking about vertical farming in particular, they tend to be very close to the cities. And I imagine a lot of those jobs that are being lost are in urban areas where the majority of the restaurants are. And some of those food management skills that we see in restaurants do translate. Would you agree? They translate to CEA. So if you know, how, you know, if you know food safety handling in a restaurant, do you think you have at least some you know baseline for a greenhouse or a vertical farm marnie absolutely absolutely some of those some of those safety trainings transfer and of course the passion for for what we do and the passion for for bringing um healthy food to people which is always i mean i, I always say that you can't teach the passion right so that's that's the piece that, that you really want yeah and we saw in the video too right those employees and and the manager really cared about their work which is to feed the world um nana could you tell us what are you seeing on the ground and kind of tell us about your work and and what's going on with food safety and, and what's CEA work you're doing there as well in that context? Okay, so with regards to food safety, um, I think we are still lagging behind a bit. Um, so but because of COVID, I mean, there has been gradual awareness um, by non-for-profits, um, by government agencies in many rural farming communities. However, aside the advisory um, advisory on regular hand washing um, and provision of um, buckets and water for, I mean, water and soap. There has actually not been any pragmatic step um, regarding sanitary practices on the farm, on the farm actually. 
Um, I don't know whether you know about this. Ghana have had issues um, with um, phytosanitary practices on food handling. Um, so I think two years back, our vegetables and most of our produce were actually banned. So like I said, it's actually a gradual process. And um, I always tell people that COVID has really been a great lesson for us, especially in the Sub-Saharan Africa. So we are now getting, um, um, getting used to, and we are now also learning how we can actually um, get all these stuff, especially with the food, food safety and food handling, especially on the, on the, on the farm. It's, 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 we are not there yet, but I hope we will get there soon. Yeah, that's very interesting, Nana. I'm going to go on to Lauren in a moment, but I wanted to kind of follow up a little bit. Do you, do you see, so COVID, in a place where there's maybe a, um, less knowledge of food safety practices, traditionally in agriculture, as you mentioned, is COVID-19 an accelerator of that knowledge because they kind of are forced to respond? Do you, do you see that people are talking about it more because it's really to protect the workers themselves? Do you think that food safety practices will increase now in Ghana as a result of COVID-19? Yes, that's what I said earlier. So because of Great. COVID, COVID has been an eye-opener. Yeah. So now people are getting to know the effects. So people are being cautious because of, of COVID and people are now thinking about the, the, the health of their employees, the health of the food we eat, and are taking measures to, 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 to handle our food safely. Fascinating. Thank you so much for that. Um, Lauren, do you have more to add to this topic? I'd love to hear from you on the global context and what you're seeing, you know, food safety around the world and your work. Sure. Just a couple of quick points to build on um, Nana and Marnie's um, great um, interventions. Um, absolutely. This, uh, this experience of COVID-19 has been a real eye opener and I think um, a learning experience for everyone. My, my example uh, the example that comes to mind is really Canadian example, Lufa Farms um, mm. in Montreal. And uh, I happened to be traveling in Montreal when the pandemic hit and Lufa was providing updates to their customers from March 12th onward. Um, really on March 12th, there was just a whisper of the lockdown in Quebec um, where they're based and really have implemented like Marnie um, described in detail, these dramatic changes to uh, their practices, their handling, their delivery, all in the context, uh, context of this incredible unprecedented demand. So really adaptive um, <laughs> behavior in, in the most real sense. Mm. And throughout May, it's really interesting, they prepared to open their fourth greenhouse, which is the, going to be the largest rooftop greenhouse in the world, apparently. So all of this as they were sort of like you know, launching a new, whole new aspect of their business. So I think it's a really um, great example of um, both um, what Nano and Marnie described, um, this kind of incredible passion, and then also this um, adaptive um, adjustment um, in terms of pivoting to meet the local context. And um, it's great to see that sort of flexibility in business models um, as we uh, face the pandemic and, and think about resilience in the future overall in the global um, food supply um, system. Thank you, Lauren. Um, you know, we're getting some incredible questions from the audience and I wanna thank you all for sending them in. I'm gonna try and bring them into this panel as it relates to it as much as I can. So one of the things I wanna talk about next relates to a little bit on your work, Marnie. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk in CEA and vertical farming about automation, right? We have this vision of high-tech automated vertical farms that don't need any labor. 
in the future. Now, I don't think we're there yet. I think we can all agree we're in a kind of semi-automated middle ground. Um, but you know, what do you think? Do you think that automated greenhouses and automated vertical farms make those operators more resilient to crises like the COVID-19 pandemic? Sure. You know, I think that they can, right? Because some of the some of the business disruptions that come as a result of a COVID-19 pandemic or other other issues um, are with regard to the labor market. Um, but it's also, it's not just the automation, it's also in, in part um, the sort of type of labor. Um, we do find in the U.S. that this, that CEA producers um, are a little uh, insulated from some other labor sort of pressures on our labor um, system. You know, one example is that um, earlier in, in the time of the pandemic, there was there were some moves by the federal government in the U.S. to limit immigration and limit um, mobility in that way. And a lot of the a lot of traditional farm workers in the U.S. Um, are migrant workers. Right. And so holding separate any politics around around the thoughts around immigration, that was something that CEA producers were immune, relatively immune from. Um, and, and, and that is an area that even if it's not full, full automation, um, it's an area where the kind of work that we do um, has access to a different labor force. That's very interesting when one is considering how they justify that upfront investment for something like automation and estimates risk. Nana, I want to go over you, to you for a moment. You know, CEA, um, you know, you talked about Ghana having food safety issues historically, and CEA can provide some protection um, in principle, and, and, and as we've discussed, can make farms more food safe. You obviously need the skills to also operate it properly. But can you talk a little bit about some of the, you know, the challenges around such an equipment-heavy, capital-intensive type of agriculture in Ghana? Yeah, so... It's, it's still a challenge um, because uh, even to start with, let's say irrigation, yeah, just a simple irrigation, it's super difficult for an average Ghanaian farmer or average African farmer to get irrigated farm, right? That's why most of our farms are seasonal. So equipment, getting huge equipment on farm, it's, well, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's kind of difficult right now. But just so to add that there are a lot of farmers, there are a lot of organizations, there are a lot of agencies who are trying to finance some of these things. So they are cooperatives also. And we have seen, and I've also worked with cooperatives that have actually pulled resources together to get some of these equipment. But on the average, it's not um, easy for an average farmer, yeah, to get um, all this equipment. Very, very interesting, especially when we think about, um, you know, sustainable development around the world, how the role of CEA and, and some of those challenges around equipment gets solved in the long term to make that impact. Um, I want to ask one last question to Lauren. We're getting a lot of questions from the audience about the nutrition in CEA farms, and there's actually very few studies. I've seen some individual farms, including Farm One, look at BRICS results, one of the nutrition um, studies for CEA. But I guess, you know, we're seeing that COVID-19 is, is, is telling countries and, and informing countries to not only invest more in food security and localization of production, but also in the quality of that production, the nutrition in it. You know, are you seeing anything about that in the discussions? Of, you know, what are your thoughts on CEA as a potentially more nutritious way of growing some crops 
in the face of COVID-19, maybe crops that improve your immunity, things like that. I mean, are we, are we there yet? Is that part of the discussion? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, um, you know, one example that comes to mind is just how uh, in terms of sort of nutrition and healthy food access, which I think is, you know, the core of your question is, mm -hmm. you know, how do we, um, what, how, what is the sort of ecosystem in a neighborhood or in a region that can provide that food? And, and um, in my own neighborhood, I'll just give an example of how, of course, all the farmers markets were shut down and um, local farming businesses, which include greenhouse businesses, were able again to pivot. So just to, back to this theme of pivoting to um, congregate through uh, neighborhood food hubs that are not only um, servicing sort of middle-class customers, but also linking um, food bank clients to this healthy food like microgreens, seedling mm. um, sprouts that are grown you know, in March, in April, in May. Uh, extremely um, healthy and nutritious uh, to those um, food bank um, customers or clients who probably um, didn't have access to those fresh foods previously. So I think it's a great example of a couple of things. One is, um, you know, those foods are have high nutritional value, but also the importance of these networks um, that are able to respond really quickly um, to meet demand, to um, you know respond to kind of new uh, vulnerable groups who are needy of um, who, who are really needing um, healthy access to healthy, um, affordable food in a in a crisis moment. It's such a great point about those networks, and again, I think that lends itself to talking about how urban farming networks in some ways have a competitive edge because certainly in New York City, you know, the urban farms connect with each other, they meet monthly, they have a relationship. And just to give one example, Teens for Food Justice, which has vertical farms in schools and produces that to impact food access, is now shut down. They can't produce it. So what did they do? They accessed their network organizations um, like Bowery Farming to get donations to make sure they can still supply those people in need with excess food that might have been wasted. So it's, those networks actually are really valuable to reduce food waste, which is actually one of our next topics, but also to kind of see how that technology and those networks relate to this issue um, as well as we're talking about. So great answer, really love that. So next up, let's move into critical topic number two, which is going to be about food waste. And to kick this off, we're gonna ask a poll to our audience. So the poll question is, what is the approximate financial loss farms in the United States have experienced since March, since COVID-19? So you see some financial US dollar estimates there. You have about 15 seconds to answer that question. How much food waste since March has occurred and what's the value of that? What's your guess? Give you a couple more seconds to answer that question. Okay, and now let's wrap up the poll and see the results of that. Okay, so we had 54% of our respondents actually um, seem to be quite informed, answered it correctly. 1.3 billion is the right answer but we did have some interesting responses close to that. So quite a significant number considering it's only since March and we do know that food waste already is an ongoing issue. So it's really quite this, this complicated thing, right? That we have these, we want more of this food, but we're actually having a lot of waste in this crisis. So again, signals that our system, it, it, it really has some room for improvement. So let's move on to the topic of um, food waste and let's start with you, Nana. I have a question for you I'm gonna pull up here. Um, so a big part of the US farming industry that's taken a hit due to the shutdown is the food service industry, you know, these restaurants and related. 
In turn, a lot of food has been thrown away, some of it donated, as we mentioned, or it's been put back in the ground if it's soil-based in some cases. In what way has this kind of global shift of demand impacted food waste and agribusiness in Sub-Saharan Africa? Pretty big question there, but really wanna hear from you what's happened on the ground related to food waste and agribusiness, especially with the groups you're working with and, and your projects. All right, thank you very much, Henry. So food, wa food waste, as we all know, is not new to the food industry. Um, at a greater percentage of the food we grow in Sub-Saharan Africa is never eaten anyway. However, the worsening issue of food waste um, due to this pandemic has thrown more light on the flaws present in our food supply chains. Um, usually farmers' biggest buyers are the food service industry. So talk of restaurants, talk of hotels. And during the pandemic, um, the guidelines forced many of these places to shut down their operations. So before lockdown in South Africa, one of our igniters, um, Peladi um, of African Agriculture Solutions, purchased thousands of seedlings for her hydroponic farms. Um, unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately, her company is a regular supplier to major hotels and restaurants in Pretoria. Um, but Few weeks after, after she purchased this and started the farm, the lockdown announcement was made. And so just like most of us, this um, unprecedented pandemic took her off guard. And um, she did, well, she did not have any alternative market. She did not make plans for any, any alternative market. So because she, she knew she was gonna supply to the hotels and restaurants anyway. And unfortunately, the hotels couldn't buy from her. And so she had to stop the hydroponics and everything got wasted. Um, so that's the example I'm giving from South Africa, um, from Pedali. And then we, I, I also have a second example from Ghana. You know, unlike the US, Ghana's food system has not been significantly impacted yet. I'm adding the yet because we don't know what's gonna happen next. <laughs> Um, so for us, the real issue is low demand um, because of lack of, of, of purchasing power. Um, you, you may agree with me that most, most, most of the people have lost their jobs. So the income of, of families have, have reduced or have decreased. And for us, we are still in the growing season also. So um, I give an example of Marian. Because of, of, of this decrease in, in income, Marian, who used to supply every day, she used to supply vegetables every day to households, could not do that anymore because they couldn't afford, right? Because most of them lost their jobs. So instead of every day, now she, she was delivering twice a week. And she has already purchased these produce. So the rest of the produce went wasted. So she lost, she lost, she lost, she lost um, them. And then I moved straight to Nigeria. We have one of our igniters there called Oluwa. For Oluwa, <laughs> Oluwa stuck, uh, got stuck on the farm because she had harvested. And because of the lockdown guidelines, she couldn't transport from the rural area to the city. 
so she got stuck. I mean, her staff got stuck and she had to use the produce for mulching, you know. So COVID impacted them, I mean, hit them hard, but in different ways in terms of food waste, okay. But one thing um, I know is that most of it's ignited. So the good, this is the good news. Though it's so food waste, most of the igniters also understand risk management, I mean, risk mitigation. So instead of letting this impact hit them, they rather use the lemonade, I mean, use the lemons, COVID through <laughs> them to make lemonade, all right? So for example, um, Marjoa now created e-commerce because of COVID. She had an idea to create an e-commerce where she could sell to other people who couldn't go out to buy, all right? So for me, I see COVID also as, as a blessing in disguise because it has opened our eyes to so many things, to so many flaws, especially in the food supply, in even food waste, how we can use technology, how we can. And for Marian, because she couldn't sell, now she has learned to add value to her produce, right? And for Olua, Olua is now trying to raise funds for cold chain. I'm sure if it had not been for COVID, he had, he would, she wouldn't even have thought about cold chain. So these are some of the things we are beginning to see because of COVID. And yeah. So these are Thank the you so much for those examples, Nana. Really, really interesting. And again, another signal that in other parts of the world, you know, and even in the developed world, developed world, COVID-19 is a wake-up call to us yep. and, and showing us and kind of pushing us to adapt and to respond. So I really appreciate those examples from three different countries. And I really liked your comment on risk mitigation um, and kind of that, how important that planning is. You know, if you have one plan, a plan A, as we say in the United States, and not a plan B, it's very difficult to respond. You never know what's going to happen when you launch your business. And so I think some of the questions are, you know, is, is CEA more adaptable? Can you have a plan B? And, you know, one of the things about CEA facilities is you can actually have different methods of production to grow full plants or salad mixes and things like that, that I think in some ways make it adaptable. But we can discuss that in a little bit. Marnie, First of all, um, audience, if you have questions about food waste, now is the time to ask it. So please send those questions in. Marnie, does CEA reduce food waste? Inherently? Inherently. Boom. Boom. That's, well, there, there's a big one. Thanks. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot a little as we've been talking about pivoting throughout this entire. And I'll talk about the things that CEA can do to reduce food waste. I don't necessarily want to make a, an absolute statement. Um, okay. I, I went to law school many years ago, so I avoid the, the absolute statements. But, um, but I will say that there are a lot of things that CEA production does that, miti that mitigate food waste, right? Okay. Um, and like Nana what? talked, I, yeah. I, I, I was just about to get there. No, it's good. Um, Nana talked about a number that are just fascinating and really, um, to me, very interesting examples. What, what I'm seeing um, from my members in the US is a few things that we've talked a little bit about. Um, we've seen members um, whose businesses sell into the food service supply chain, who have had the ability to pivot and enter the direct-to-consumer market if possible, or donate food if possible, because there's needs um, there. We've seen, I thought your example, Henry, about what Bowery Farming, another member of, of ours is doing, was really exciting, and what a great way to ensure that those networks that we have, um, that we've built up, maybe for other reasons, um, but can be put to use now um, to not only um, minimize food waste, but also ensure that folks have access to healthy food. Um, another example outside of COVID, uh, perhaps, 
that I heard from one of our retail partners or one of my members retail partners around how CEA can potentially um, limit food waste is, is that oftentimes CEA, the, the chain, but I keep talking about the supply chain, the chain between the CEA producer and the final destination is shorter, which will allow retailers or other um, consumers to purchase smaller amounts more regularly, right? So instead of food going bad on the shelf, um, instead of making one, one um, larger shipment for a longer period of time, um, they can really target their orders in a way that they're sure that the food will be purchased and be eaten during a time that it's, um, that it's at its best, right? So that is an area I do think where CEA can offer outside of COVID um, a benefit to, to food waste or to limiting food waste. Thank you, Marnie, for those examples. Lauren, you know, what do you think? I mean, from the policy perspective, is CEA seen as a meaningful solution to food waste, which is an enormous environmental and economic issue? Well, um, this conversation is making me think about one example from Medellin, Colombia, which I think is really um, interesting and instructive right now. So just to pick up on a couple of themes that I'm seeing in the Q&A, um, themes around sort of the city region food system, does CEA replace, um, you know, agriculture as we know it, um, also circular um, uh, economy stuff. So I think food waste fits into all of this. And CEA, of course, is part of like a broader ecosystem of um, food production and supply in, in, these, um, in these regions, right? So um, just building on that in, in Medellin, I mean, they've really uh, been thinking about food policy for a long time. And so in a sense, they were able to um, mitigate some of the issues that Nana described in her three examples, because instead of um, sort of closing down and locking down these huertos de abastamiento that they have, um, supply farms that are, you know, supported by the city government to um, bring food into the city, um, from all different kinds of producers. Those were really acknowledged right from the outset as essential services. Their uh, movement and flow of goods was enabled and encouraged. And then, you know, because of the sort of disruptions in supply chains, we saw, like Nana also said, um, you know, new digital e-commerce, like WhatsApp um, exchange, like all these kind of creative uh, new ways of sharing information and making sure that food that was available was getting to the to the right spot. So, you know, a lot of this innovation, I think that we're seeing um, to manage food waste is about social um, innovation, right? It's about mm. having that social capacity and those social assets that are allow you to kind of be really adaptive. And that stands in real contrast to other supply chains, like in the US where millions of animals have been euthanized, um, you know, at a time because of the the processing plant shutdowns, the abattoir shutdowns, at a time when um, food banks are being overwhelmed by demand. So, you know, it's just like this kind of contrasting ability to um, shift and um, agility versus fragility in supply chains, durable supply chains which kind of last through these crises versus like really fixed supply chains that just can't, you know. Um, you know, repack their flour from those big uh, flour bins to meet the growing demand of like home baking, for example, or so, you know, just like thinking about durability versus, um, you know, these fixed uh, supply chains that can't, um, can't adapt. 
Yeah, thank you for highlighting that, that paradox in this. And I, I guess I want to answer one of the audience questions that kind of relates to that really briefly uh, from each of you. What do you think? You know, we've talked about COVID-19 being a wake-up call. Is it really a wake-up call? I mean, we had SARS, we had MERS, we've had other issues in the past. Is this really different? Are we really going to learn from this, do you think? Well, I'll jump in. I mean, I, I sure hope so. And of course, um, you know, we're seeing like so much information. So you can be on, you know, one side of the coin or the other. Yes, we are going to change and no, we're not. But, um, you know, recently, for example, um, China decided that they're not, they're not, they're not going to report out on GDP. And for me, this is like a really interesting sign that we're looking mm -hmm. for new, new metrics, new holistic metrics to evaluate success and sustainability and resilience in, in, our, in our broader economic systems. And then of course we're translating it here into food. So, you know, what do those new metrics look like? They address labor, they address food safety, they address food security, and um, uh, they address kind of our broader sustainability um, agenda. So um, I Great, take, I hope, I am, I'm seeing hope, signs of hope there. Marnie, any quick, quick thoughts on that? Yeah, quickly, I would just echo everything that Lauren just said. And, and also just from a, the United States perspective, it, it, it feels like, I, I feel hopeful that we're at a, a real turning point here. We've got a lot going on in this country right now that we are coming to a head on. And I think um, it, it feels different than any moment in American history in the last, I would say, 50, 60 years. And so while I acknowledge that, that that's not everything, um, I do think that we are in a position to really take take this in um, and, and make a change. I sure hope, to echo Lauren, I sure hope so. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of those crises, you know, they, they didn't spread globally, but they didn't lead to a global shutdown of you know, billions of people being at home. So I think that there is, are some distinct differences. Nana, anything to add briefly? I was nope. just about to say what you said. So uh, oh, okay. I think this is different, yeah, yeah. I'll give you credit for that then, with the great minds think alike. So let's move into critical topic number three, which is food security. First off, I want to kind of echo some of Lauren's definition in her introduction about what food security is. So food security means that all people at all times have physical, social, and economic access to sufficient, safe, talking about food safety, nutritious food that meets their food preferences and dietary needs from an active and healthy life. So really a perfect scenario for food access and quality and their preferences as well. So our question to you, the audience, that we're going to have in a poll is what is the biggest advantage that Controlled Environment Agriculture, CEA, offers in the realm of food security? And you can see some options there on what the benefits are from, from CEA to food security, and we want to hear from you what those are. And then we're gonna dive into some questions with Lauren and our other panelists. So give you a few more minutes to answer that. I wanna remind you that you continue to send us questions. We are gonna do our best to get to them. We're gonna have a question and answer period at the end as well. So please keep them coming anyway. Um, so let's wrap up the poll and see what people think before we move into this question. Okay, so the top answer by a fraction was year-round production. Okay, so the ability for these controlled environments to produce year-round, followed by a shared response from less food miles, so fresher food, and less exposure to natural disasters. Honestly, it looks like here, people pretty much feel like CEA has a, a full range of possible impacts uh, pretty equally across the board. So that's interesting that people see benefits of CEA in multiple different areas. So may, again, that makes me think about, you know, what is the right CEA solution 
for the right um, location and the problem you're trying to solve specifically. Is the problem climate? Is that the major one? Is the problem food safety, food waste? Is that, that the major one? So let's move on to you, Lauren. Um, <clears throat> so obviously COVID, as we talked about, has made food security more vulnerable, at least shown those, those flaws in our system as we've talked about. What are you seeing governments doing to respond to this issue, the specific issue of food security and some of the things maybe that we haven't mentioned already? Are you seeing a dramatic shift in policy? I mean, you mentioned some of them, but can you illuminate us on some more of those? Yeah, I think um, I'll start with just offering a couple of like some general reflections on how governments are kind of um, acting around food, maybe differently from the way they would have otherwise, and then um, try to also link to our conversation about um, CEA and, you know, the kind of implications of this for, for CEA. Um, so, you know, overall, I think my observation is that governments um, at various levels, whether it's at municipal level that we were talking about, the local uh, level or the national level. Um, so those governments who have already addressed food in an integrated way were able to address food security issues that arose from this pandemic uh, much faster than those who were not. So it's just a reminder that we actually need to do that work of, you know, cross silo connections, intersectoral kind of dialogue in order to solve these problems. And if you've done it before, you have the relationships and networks to, you know, do it in a, in a crisis. So um, that's kind of one observation. And then, of course, there have been a number of responses around the emergency food access, which has really been critical, I think, for all governments to deal with. Um, so the increased demand for emergency food services. So for example, in Toronto, where I'm from, um, the libraries have been opened uh, for food banks, um, like to create additional food banks. Um, Toronto is giving grocery uh, gift cards to families who are enrolled in student nutrition programs. So those kids would have otherwise had um, breakfast or meal programs in schools. In the US, the Good Food Purchasing Program has really quickly pivoted as well to redirect um, institutional food programs around the country. Um, Foodshare, a local NGO, has really just scaled up the delivery of fresh fruit and ve vegetable boxes to the most vulnerable neighborhoods, who are also the neighborhoods who are most um, impacted by COVID, right? It's those communities that um, are racialized, um, who are poorest and most vulnerable, who are also seeing the highest rates of COVID in, in our city. And then other um, networks like the Toronto Food Policy Council advocating for opening of community gardens and farmers markets where they were initially closed. So really doing that advocacy work. So that's sort of part of the short-term recovery. Similarly in Quito and Ecuador, that's done a lot of work on, on that sort of city region. Um, they're really uh, looking to improve the operation of their wholesale markets and their retail distributions in this time, making sure that those small shops that are providing food stay open, um, trying to control price and speculation and kind of all those economic um, waves, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, and also doing a ton of work around kind of food safety, bioprotection for everybody involved in the food system. So those are kind of the shorter term um, measures. Um, and then there's uh, the sort of longer term implications around building back better and, and using this moment to think about building uh, resilience and not kind of entrenching this charitable food response. So um, I think this is where we get into uh, the opportunity for CEA because, you know, a lot of people right now, policymakers are thinking about um, significantly, significantly enhanced funding for green 
nature-based infrastructure, sustainable agriculture, circular economy. And um, I think we're going to see a kind of sea change where food is increasingly recognized instead of just the sort of a private um, business as public infrastructure that requires the same investment strategies as public transportation, affordable housing, clean water, mm. energy, et cetera. So like, what does it look like to have this public um, infrastructure and see, you know, CEA as um, part of that public infrastructure? So the associated zoning and planning regulations that enable this, et cetera, et cetera. So I just wanted to kind of, um, uh, yeah. make that point like really CEA and um, this kind of regional agriculture needs mid-sized infrastructure for processing and distribution um, to encourage kind of flexibility and agility in the system so I think that's the opportunity moving forward um, just to mention like specifically the implications I think for for CEA um, I think CA uh, businesses and all of you who are working um, in those um, businesses and as in investing in these systems need to think about the broader connection to this infrastructure and to the city region food system um, to kind of be engaged in those broader discussions. Um, think about the multiple dimensions of food security that CA is connected to. Um, and also uh, think about how CEA contributes to social resilience by reducing uh, vulnerability. And really, um, you know, a lot of that is about living wage, uh, as we've seen, excellent benefits, sick leave, social protection, good HR policy. Like those are things that can be done at the business level. Um, making sure that there are strong diversity and inclusion um, strategies. These are all protections that more accurately reflect the importance of, um, of kind of local and regional food economies and their ability to um, adapt in times of crisis. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. I mean, so much um, there. I really liked the comment on infrastructure and I'm gonna actually answer some, ask some questions if you can answer them quickly from the audience related to this. So to follow up with you, you know, one of the questions is emergency charity funds are being used you know, um, to feed people, but why don't, why doesn't that money go towards infrastructure? I think in some ways, you know, the response to, in the US to police versus funding education is kind of an interesting thing as well. What's the, the infrastructure of safety versus responding to safety issues? So any, are, people, are governments talking about that? Are they seeing investing in this infrastructure you mentioned as a, as a new response or response that they should do instead of aid? Um, I think there's a lot of discussion about that right now. And um, the good news is, you know, from where I stand in Canada is that emergency um, food distribution, the emergency food distribution sector has been thinking for a long time about, you know, how not to become more entrenched, how not to become more reliant on, you know, private and philanthropic um, donations to address um, food needs. And, um, you know, some of the economic measures, the economic support that's being given to individuals is demonstrating that, you know, if we had that kind of economic uh, foundation for people uh, from the outset, that maybe some of this um, kind of charitable response wouldn't be so heightened and so kind of drastic at this moment. Um, so what is the, you know, what is the floor for an annual income? You know, what do people really need to take care of their basic needs like food? So we don't need to have um, these acute levels of hunger and these skyrocketing um, demand for charitable food uh, distribution. Very interesting. 
Nana, you had some thoughts on policy um, you wanted to share. Do you want to share some thoughts on that related to food security briefly? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> with regards to um, Ghana, um, there have been some mitigation measures by the government of Ghana. So we have what we call um, National Board NBSSI, so National Board of Small Scale Industries. And so the government are giving, the government is giving stimulus loans to um, local businesses mm. to support them, to cushion them because of COVID-19. And also we've, we've, we've also seen that the government has given tax flexibility um, by the Ghana Revenue Authority. Um, so, and we also have some tax deductibles just to support local businesses, small businesses, small, medium businesses, um, so that they don't collapse after COVID-19. So these are some of, of, of the things that the, the, the government um, is doing to support businesses in terms of, of the uh, pandemic, yeah. Great, so we wanna thank the audience for um, going through these three critical topics for us and the panelists for exploring them. Let's open it up to some audience questions. Gus, if you wanna join, um, I could use your help in filtering through these questions and answering them as well. I just want to make a comment first that a lot of the questions are around the technical feasibility of vertical farming. Um, there are some questions on policy. So if you have technical questions about this, I definitely invite you to check out Green Tech's Equipment Marketplace, which has a lot of information. I keep in touch with the Green Tech newsletter for equipment and also some of their announcements. Farm Tech Society is a go-to place for policy as it relates to CEA. And if you are looking to design a farm, as I mentioned earlier, Agriculture Designer gives you some of those economic estimates. So there are some resources there. We're going to select some questions that we think are going to be good here. Gus, do you have any that are on mind? I have one, which is I'd like to ask anyone on this line right now. Um, consumer preferences, how would they change post-COVID-19? Anyone can jump in. We've, well, here in the U.S., uh, we've seen a number of studies that, um, you know, it's it's probably a little too soon to tell, but a number of studies that indicate that consumers are um, turning towards what they perceive to be healthier foods, um, fruits and vegetables. Um, consumers are obviously cooking more uh, at home um, for those consumers who, who had a, a lifestyle that included a, a healthy dose of restaurant um, going, that is, all, that is all gone and folks are, are focusing on, on, uh, on cooking at home more, at least until that becomes available again. Um, and so I think, you know, we also hear a lot, you know, we all, we all know um, that COVID is not transmitted by food. Um, and we also hear a lot of consumers saying, we're really thinking about food safety here. We're thinking, we want to mm -hmm. think about safety with regard to everything, right? And so we're, we're thinking in the U.S., we see people, um, you know, sanitizing everything that comes into their home, right? Um, and so the more uh, I think that we can communicate the efforts that we take um, in our production, to, to ensure that our food is safe and healthy, um, the more we will sort of meet some of those consumer demands that existed pre-COVID, but I think are uh, broader now. Right. Um, yeah, maybe I can add a few sentences as well. Is what, what you are seeing is, of course, that uh, as, as Marnie also points out, is that, is that people are staying more at home, therefore they're more or less forced to have to cook for themselves more, but also I think enjoying maybe the joys of cooking and making a good meal. And I, I think also that a lot of people are putting the money that they otherwise would be spending in restaurants into a better quality of food that they buy for themselves. 
this is very much also the case in the example that you mentioned for Urban Harvest in Brussels, who actually are thriving because they, they can offer a superior quality of, of, of vegetables through the retail channels to, to their consumers. Um, and the other thing, I also believe that the interest in, in food security, food safety is, 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 is very, very high. And of course, in vertical farming guarantees a way that is essentially free of, of added chemicals. You don't need to wash, you have excellent shelf life. Uh, you're pretty sure that you, 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 you get something that you're very, very happy to eat and feed also to your family. Um, so I, I do see a lot of opportunity there. Uh, obviously, we, we also as an industry still need to work on making sure that we develop this into a, a feasible option for many, many people, because right now vertical farming still is something for the uh, high end of the market, I would say. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, Go yeah. Ahead. I was going to jump in. If, um, if that's okay, do we have time, Henry? Just yes, on we his, do. Um, I, will, I will tell you when we're out of time. You have time. Okay, Let's great. Um, I, you know, I think it's a really interesting question. And... Um, of course, you know, even before we came into this COVID reality, we were um, really seeing dramatic global shifts in consumption patterns. So with, um, you know, some countries really eating more meat and other countries, you know, eating less meat or less and better meat and all of these kind of interesting dynamics that are really mainly driven um, actually by the sustainability agenda, by climate change concerns, all of these things. So. I think it's interesting to kind of think about, you know, this moment in relationship to those broader uh, trends. Um, this morning I was on um, a webinar that was hosted by the World Business Council for Sustainable Development with Edelman, and they were talking a lot about trust in the system. So um, Marnie, just to kind of build on your points, um, you know, how are people expressing that desire and that interest in more trust in the food that they're eating, in the brands that they're connecting to? And then finally, I think um, really we've seen in COVID like a lot of new patterns for purchasing food. And um, I think CEA has been well poised to kind of um, walk through the door of some of those new behaviors like um, Nana was talking about, you know, more like digital platforms for, you know, buying food and home delivery and, you know, the list goes on, right? Like, I think we're all, we've all kind of changed some of those patterns and whether we just go back to the way we're purchased and, and made food before, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how um, long-term some of those shifts are. So we got a question here from Iris, and this question really is, I'll just read it out. How does CEA address food poverty? And I think many more people globally are moving into poverty as a result of COVID-19, when the majority of vertical farms are loss-making due to excessive costs. Obviously, vertical farms have more infrastructure, more lighting. Food doesn't have to be more expensive. Food shouldn't be more expensive, I think, is the opinion of Iris. And I guess I just want to um, kind of just highlight that a little bit, that we talked about the infrastructure needed. Most of our respondents to the poll said there are various benefits of CEA from year-round production, this or that. I mean, CEA operators typically don't get subsidized in the same way that other types of agriculture do. You know, I guess what's the path forward for CEA to impact the food insecure? Any thoughts on that? Is it possible with, with such a high upfront cost? Is there a government role in that? Um, Maybe it's a good time for, for me to step in there for, for, for a few Please. pointers. Um, first of all, um, having come also in uh, the, the innovation we're looking at in, in farming here is, is also driven by technology. And we're seeing that we bring new systems to the market that are 
not always as mature yet as the existing ways of growing. And there is a learning curve and a technology development curve, which will improve. So we're already, we're seeing that the systems that are being constructed today are a lot better than what we did five years ago. And that will continue to go on for a while. Now, this is not like computer chips where these things will be free for after a while, but at least you, 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 can, you can make uh, quite a lot of uh, good improvements there still. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, the, the question is, of course, can vertical farming be a viable way of providing food for most people, for the masses, I would say, and not just for the privileged? And that is something that will happen over time. I'm sure it will happen. It will not happen for every type of food. It will be limited to the same type of crops that you're growing in greenhouses today. But over time, you will see that vertical farming can be a very viable alternative, also because we can reshape the value chain. We can make food fresher. We can make it better. We can make it healthier and more nutritious and more available to those people that are in the middle of an urban area where they normally cannot get fresh food. And I think those benefits are the ones that we need to build on as an industry. And that's also why we need to work on standards and education and policy making to make sure that we also create the playing field, if you will, for this, type, this industry to be successful. And that's also the, where your point comes in for subsidies and everything else, Henry. Thank you so much for that. Let's move on to another question. We're going to try and answer as many of them as possible. So this question relates to the kind of common question of, will CA be able to, to grow staple crops? Um, CA typically grows some of the leafy green products we mentioned. And obviously, a lot of the costs to that are going to be very expensive with these high-tech systems. Agritecture estimates that bread sold from a vertical farm may cost you know, $17 a loaf, for example. Will COVID-19 change that? Will COVID-19 accelerate the diversification of crops in CEA? Maybe that's a Gus question too. Any thought, maybe Marnie, do you have a thought on that? I'd love to hear from you. What do you think? That's a tough one. I have my turn. <laughs> uh, Marnie, you might want to jump in here and, and Anna too, but um, you know, from my perspective, uh, it's not sort of either or, right? It's um, again, we talked about the sort of city region food system and ecosystem of, you know, producers and suppliers and um, CEA fits into that where it makes sense. So I'm not sure you're going to grow the corn soy rotation in <laughs> a CEA environment or, you know, context. So um, anyways, I, I don't think right. I need to say a lot more than that, but um, obviously you um, pick your crops and um, we need to think yeah. about the cost of food really broadly. Like what are, uh, those broader um, costs, we're not going to, um, you know, embed um, costs that don't make sense. Um, yeah, there are tools for, in the toolbox. For frivolous reasons. Methods yeah. of production and, and, and CA doesn't solve all of them. It solves, you know, some of them for some of the crop categories. That's Marnie, right. some additional yeah. thoughts on that? Right. I, I mean, I would echo what, what Lauren said and just say, you know, it's, it's a it's a both and situation, right? It's a it's a big tent of a variety of ways that we can solve a variety of problems in our food system, right? We don't have one problem in our food system. We have a number and uh, we don't have one solution. Um, we sure shouldn't have one solution. Um, and so CEA will continue, I believe, to grow and adapt in the areas where it makes sense. Um, and I think there are going to be other solution, other solutions um, out there that also um, together uh, with CEA can can solve some of these problems and shift our food system from where it is to something better and then yet better again um, as, as we continue. Thank you so yeah, much. But, but, but uh, yeah, yeah. To, to, to add to what Lauren and Mani said, so I mean CEA can't solve all the problems but I, I believe that we all can also be part of the, of the solution. So why not start growing what you eat at home? Yeah. So COVID-19 has taught us that you can actually grow your own food. We, we spent time at home 
And so you can grow your own food. I have initiated a program in Ghana called Home Gardening with a Sheep Farmer, where I, I teach people how to grow their own foods at home. So we can all be part of a solution. You can grow your own food if you can. All right. So let's, let's try to think outside the box and to be part of a solution. Thank you so much, Nana. That to me sounded like a call to action, which is what I want from all the panelists as a last bit. So I'm going to count that as yours in the interest of time. Um, you know, Lauren and Marnie and then Gus, really quickly, what's one message you have for the audience to wrap things up as briefly as possible? Um, well, uh, just to echo what I've said already, I think the call to action is really about uh, thinking creatively about resilience in the system, social, human, and um, environmental resilience. So this won't be the um, only shock that our system faces in the future. Mm -hmm. And um, how can we learn from this experience to better prepare ourselves for the future? Thank you. Well, Lauren, you took mine, but uh, so I will just I will just add on that. Yes, I agree. Resilience is the key. The other thing that I think you raised earlier that I just think is a really critical call to action is this thinking about um, CEA in the context of infrastructure and thinking about building a more secure food supply, building the infrastructure to allow for a more secure food supply and making sure that CEA is a part of that conversation. I think that's critical. It's something we're working on here in the US um, because I think without it, it's we're kind of playing what we call whack-a-mole, trying to solve problems as they come up as opposed to creating the right infrastructure so that we can be resilient to these problems going forward. Thank you, Gus. Yeah. Well, there's not much to add there. In, in the end, what we're looking for is to, to um, provide good and healthy food to as many people as possible and to, make, and, and, and to help make the world a little bit better place that way. It's not about technology. It's not about uh, putting, putting uh, nifty tricks that you can do. It is really about how we make sure that we can feed these people in many, many different places. And the way that this goes here, we start probably at the top with a relatively expensive solution and we get better over time. And I think we need to pull together and work together and make that happen. And my message okay. to our mostly European and producer focused audience is focus on your customer as much as possible, even if you're a CA operator far away from them. I think COVID-19 has shown us that those that have a strong, close relationship directly with the customer, whether it's through social media, through newsletters, through various aspects of them visiting your farm virtually or in person, has been able to really strengthen their ability to adapt to this and sell to them directly, which is a bit important. So think about that. So, um, Harry, wanna... that, wasn't my, that wasn't my call to action. Oh, <laughs> go, go ahead, Nana. Go ahead, Nana. So, so for up. me, I think we've all seen the labs in our food systems. So my call to action is for us to build solid collaboration to strengthen the system, which is, for me, the most important. Well, it's important to build solid collaboration so that we can really strengthen the food system. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nana, Lauren, Marnie, Gus, all of our panelists and moderators today. I'd like to leave the final thoughts to our incredible host for Green Tech, Mariska Dreschler. Mariska? Thank you, Henry. Well, we generally hope that this webinar was of inspiration uh, to you and provide you usable new insights as horticulture professional. We are very eager to learn how we can shape the webinars to your wishes. And so please don't forget to send your evaluation points in the survey that will be sent to you. Well, thanks FarmTech Society, Agritecture and the panelists for your contribution to this Green Tech Talk. Also, thanks to you, audience, for your contribution because you had a lot of questions in the Q&A and we'll, we will do our utmost to, uh, to answer them later on. Well, together we are the Green Tech community. 
Tomorrow we will have the webinar on medicinal cannabis. Please sign up if you have not done that yet. Bye-bye from the Rye Studio in Amsterdam. I'm looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. Stay safe and healthy. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>